This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We've got a pre-Halloween special for you today. Author Colin Dickey discusses his new book, Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. Then PW Reviews Editor Annie Carino shares more books about the scary, spooky, morbid things. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Best seller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And uh, we've still got Nicholas Sparks hanging out in the number one spot, no surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, he's going to be parked there for a while. Um, even in its second week out, his book sold another nearly 50,000 copies. Wow. So uh, there's, uh, there's that uh, stand there at number one, but we do have a new number two, which is Small Great Things by Jodi Picot. And uh, this is her latest page turner inspired by a real life event in which a white supremacist father mm. in Flint, Michigan, refused to allow an experienced black labor and n- delivery nurse to touch his newborn child. And in this uh, wow. novelization or novel uh, inspired by those events, a medical crisis results in the infant's death and a murder charge against the black nurse. And uh, so this is pretty intense. And the story unfolds from three viewpoints, uh, the nurses, the infant's father, and the nurse's public defender, who's a white professional woman questioning her own views about racism. Uh, We say it's a a powerful story right up until the author undermines the richly drawn and compelling story with a manipulative final plot twist and a Pollyanna-ish ending. Mm. Uh, Some may be put off by the moralistic undertone, but others will appreciate the inspiration. Wow. So that's certainly... Yeah. One of those books that's going to polarize people, I suspect. Uh, and uh, it's on our bestseller list at number two. Uh, just below that, uh, number three is Order to Kill. Uh, this is the 15th entry in the uh, bestselling series st- featuring Mitch Rapp. Uh, it was started by the late Vince Flynn. And uh, this is the uh, first book completely by Kyle Mills, who yeah. also completed uh, Flynn's last unfinished manuscript. And this one pits Rapp, who's a CIA officer, against a personal assassin working for the Russian president. And uh, for once, Rapp might be in trouble. And uh, 15th book in an international thriller series, we gave it a star. uh, And we say that satisfied fans will hope that Mills will fulfill their continuing Mitch Rapp needs far into the future. And there's uh, plenty plenty of excitement, vim and vigor to... uh, to keep you right. on your toes. Um, at number six, we have Crimson Death. This is the 25th book in the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series by Laurel K. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, Hamilton pretty much single-handedly created the urban fantasy and paranormal romance genres oh, wow. uh, with her first book in the series, Guilty Pleasures. And uh, now it's uh, her 25th an- adventure for vampire hunter Anita Blake, who's now also a zombie raiser. And uh, it, it, these are these are wonderful kitchen sink books. They've got a little bit of everything. 
And uh, in this case, uh, Anita's got some good friends coming along to the party uh, with their own spooky abilities. Oh, great. So uh, that's at number uh, six. And down at number 12 is Precious and Grace by Alexander McCall Smith. And uh, this is the 17th book in the number one Ladies Detective Agency series. Mm. I can't believe that series has been going on so long. I had no idea. Uh, I didn't either. And uh, we call this uh, installment Warm Hearted and Humane. Um, the main case for the ladies of the detective agency involves a Canadian woman in her late 30s who spent her childhood years in Botswana and now wants to find Rosie, the nursemaid who is largely responsible for raising her. And uh, you know, there are some questions about about why she's on this quest in the first place, whether the woman who shows up claiming to be Rosie really is who she says she is. And uh, there are also a couple of other minor cases involving a stray dog who needs a home, a pyramid scheme, and so forth. And we say that, as ever, Smith adroitly mixes gentle humor with important life lessons. So it sounds like a very solid installment. Moving all the way down to number 21, we have Treason by Newt Gingrich. You might have heard of him. Uh, he's written a couple of other books. And uh, this is the second one in his Duplicity series. Uh, I think he's also a politician. Yeah. Uh, he might be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> might be getting the name mixed up with somebody else. Anyway, um, so... Uh, uh, yeah, reading off of the description, uh, it does say leading politician and best-selling author Newt Gingrich is back uh, combining his efforts with those of novelist Pete Early uh, to uh, to write this second book in the Duplicity series. Um, this is another international thriller, this time involving the world's master terrorist known only as the Falcon. Mm. And uh, he's infiltrated Washington and is going to take the whole place down. Uh, so we don't have a review of this, but uh, I think it's one of those where if you uh, were a big fan of the first book in the series, you'll yep. pick up the second right. book in the series. Yeah. Uh, down at number 24, we have The Mothers by Britt Bennett. We gave this a starred review, said it's a brilliant, tumultuous debut novel about a trio of young people coming of age under the shadow of mm -hmm. harsh circumstances in a black community in Southern California. And uh, Bennett addresses abortion, inf infidelity, religious faith, hypocrisy, and race head on. Uh, and uh, it's all sort of seen through the life of a 17-year-old girl uh, whose mother has committed suicide, who's pregnant, and uh, is trying to decide what to do about that pregnancy. Mm. Uh, we say that uh, Bennett shows an extraordinary compassion for her flawed characters, and a Greek chorus of narrating gossipy mothers from the local upper room chapel provides further context and an extra layer to an already exquisitely developed story. So, right. Definitely an author to watch. Yeah, and I've been, uh, we've been hearing uh, uh, that, that's been getting played on NPR, and uh, uh, I've seen reviews of that as well, so it's, it's getting a lot of attention. Excellent. And finally, at number 25, Hagseed by Margaret Atwood. And uh, we also gave this a starred review. And this is, the, uh, in, in this case, her adaptation of The Tempest, in which she makes Prospero a prominent theater festival director. <laughs> and uh, after he's been done out of his job by a scheming underling, he goes off the grid. So this is his equivalent of retiring to an island, um, except in this case, he's teaching literacy and theater to prisoners. Mm. Uh, and uh, he decided that uh, he's going to seek his revenge where he gets an opportunity. 
And uh, we said that uh, Atwood's Candy Remix offers multiple pleasures, including uh, seeing the inmates take on their characters, watching Felix, the Prospero figure, uh, make use of the limited resources the prison affords, and marveling at the ways that she changes, updates, and parallels the play's magic, grief, vengeance, and showmanship. Great. Uh, that's what we've got on the fiction list. All right. Well, uh, nonfiction, we got a couple of cookbooks. We have uh, at number two, which is our highest debut, uh, Skinny Taste, Fast and Slow, Knockout, Quick Fix and Slow Cooker Recipes by Gina Homolka with uh, Heather K. Jones. Uh, this is uh, Homolka, who's the uh, the author of the Skinny Taste cookbook here, presents about 140 low-fat, high-nutrition recipes. Uh, and these are, these are like you know time-saving techniques and what we say flavorful dishes that are ready in 30 minutes or less and easy to assemble slow cooker meals. So we say using uh, Homolka's strategies, home cooks can deliver balanced, delicious meals, even when time is an obstacle. So, so that's for the family. For for those who want to party, there's Thug Kitchen 101, fast as F asterisk CK uh, by Thug Kitchen. Uh, the creators of the New York Times bestselling cookbook series, Thug Kitchen, are back to deliver uh, the sort of gentle but always hilarious uh, shove you need to take the leap into healthy eating. So, um, uh, and and this is, uh, so, uh, you know, your basic 101. So uh, they did, I'm sorry, the last one was on, on parties, but this is, uh, again, a fast and healthy cookbook, kind of like the skinny taste. So uh, at number six, we have, we, uh, excuse me, we have James Patterson's Filthy Rich, a powerful billionaire, the sex scandal that undid him and all the justice that money can buy, the shocking true story of Jeffrey Epstein um, by James uh, Patterson and uh, with John Connolly and Tim Malloy, who's a contributor to this. So this is a, uh, we don't have a review of this, but this is a true crime tale of money, power, and sex from the world's most elite thriller writer, according to... Um, Publicity material. We do have a memoir uh, here by actor Brian uh, Cranston, A Life in Parts, at number 11. Uh, he's best known today for Breaking Bad. Uh, here, Cranston played a number of roles before becoming an actor. He was a paperboy, biker, grocery store uh, security guard. And each chapter here explores a different facet of his personal history. Um, kind of as though Cranston were teaching another actor how to play him on stage. Hmm. Um, we say, by the way, in which Cranston's simple staccato prose invites readers to empathize with every character quote unquote he's played uh, elevates his autobiography to more than just a look behind the scenes it's a look behind a life um, so he, he, he really talks about his life and the various uh, various stages of life and and sees how you know and shows how they reflect in his roles or or not mm-hmm. uh, and number 17. it's interesting to have a collection of essays this is upstream by uh Mary Oliver, we say in our review, distinguished, honored, prolific, popular, best-selling. These are adjectives that don't always hang out together. Describe Oliver's body of work. Nearly three dozen volumes of poetry and collections of prose. The message of her book, we say, for its readers is a simple and profound one. Open your eyes. Uh, And this is from Penguin Press at number 17. So it's kind of cool to see a collection of essays and 
poetry on on the nonfiction bestseller. I mean, list. she's legendary. Exactly. Yeah. She's even yeah. even people like me who don't know a lot about right, poetry right, have heard exactly, of Mary Exactly. Exactly. It's but it's still it's still really good to see this. So mm-hmm. uh, then we have uh, a life well played. My stories by the late Arnold Palmer. Uh, he died in September, and uh, this book. Whenever he has a book that comes out, uh, people buy it, mm-hmm. uh, philosophies and life lessons from golf. Uh, this one, uh, we, we say readers looking for more insight into Palmer would be better served by his earlier 2000 autobiography, but nevertheless, especially in light of his death, this is something that fans and, and golf fans, you know, Palmer fans and golf fans can dig into. Absolutely. Finally, number 20, uh, starred review, I Am Brian Wilson, a memoir by Brian Wilson with the uh, the, the Beach Boys. Uh, we say in this charming and powerfully written memoir that will engage a readership beyond the multitude of Beach Boys fans, Wilson honestly tells the story of his life from its humble beginnings in Southern California, where he was raised by a father who routinely demeaned, frightened, and beat him, to becoming a Kennedy Center honor honoree for his 50 years of musical contributions to American culture. So uh, we say that Wilson's emotional authenticity is beguiling as he takes readers deeply into his mind, voices and all, to describe his unique manifestation of musical genius. And we do have a Q&A with him in the magazine as well. And that's what we have. Start review, Brian Wilson. All right. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Colin Dickey tells us about America's haunted past. We'll be right back. I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Colin Dickey on the line. His new book is Ghostland, an American history in haunted places. Colin, I'm so glad you could join us. Well, thanks for having me on. So you say uh, in your book that uh, ghost stories reveal the contours of our anxieties, the nature of our collective fears and desires, the things we can't talk about in any other way. So tell us about that, about that connection between ghost stories and the American psyche. Yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, really just sort of collecting these stories where I could, wherever I could find them and always excited to you know, tell a good ghost story around a campfire or something like that. And and at some point, you know, I realized that that some of these stories were more than just about, uh, you know, trying to scare somebody, trying to get a, a rise out of somebody, but they, they might actually have a kind of deeper resonance. And, and some of the stories that, that get told and retold may be tapping into some sort of larger cultural conversation. And so, uh, so I started sort of listening a little bit more closely and, you know, why we tell some stories and not others. And, and what do those stories say about, about the tellers? How does a story, you know, change over time? Maybe some aspects of the, the ghost story sort of uh, get emphasized over others. And meanwhile, the, you know, maybe the actual history of a, of a haunted place is, is uh, lost or covered up by subsequent ghost stories. And I, you know, I tried to really kind of unpack both, both the history of, of some of America's most haunted places and also, you know, why they had become so famous and, and how those stories reflected sort of other concerns that we might have. So how did this, uh, so, so this is something you've had an interest in, uh, for a while, it sounds, what made you decide to put it together in a book? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in San Jose, California. So I grew up next to the, uh, the Winchester mystery house, which is again, one of those, you know, places that gets called, 
you know, the, the most haunted house in America. And, and the story behind the Winchester Mystery House, as I always heard it growing up, was that uh, uh, Sarah Winchester, the woman who built it, her father-in-law invented the Winchester Rifle Company and, you know, made a, made a great fortune selling, selling rifles. And um, Sarah Winchester uh, lost both her infant daughter and then, and then later her husband at a fairly young age. And according to, to legend, she became um, convinced that uh, her family was cursed and that she was being haunted by anyone who'd ever been killed by a Winchester rifle. And a psychic told her that the only way to keep them all at bay would be to build a house that would never be finished. So she, she moved out to San Jose, California, and she bought this eight room farmhouse and started building on it night and day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next 36 years and built this huge gargantuan labyrinth, this 160 room Victorian monstrosity without really any rhyme or reason this kind of you know sprawling house and you know i always love that place i love growing up there i love that story and only as an adult did i start to learn that that maybe maybe that that legend wasn't entirely always 100 percent accurate but but maybe that you know the the as i said i mean the the way that it it has evolved over the years to kind of become its current form i think says a lot about um, you know, uh, how we, how we view women who live alone, uh, who have a lot of money that don't spend it in, in ways that make a lot of sense. And, you know, what, how do we feel about, you know, uh, uh, firearms in our, our country and, and, and their use and, and their legacy. So all these things sort of get kind of wrapped up into that story. And I thought that was just a really fascinating example of a, of a ghost story that, that told a lot more than it initially seemed to. So is, is this, place still considered haunted i mean are 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 people still whenever they go there uh, experiencing um ghost forms or or whatever i mean yes uh, according to what everybody says i mean yeah it's still it's still considered quite haunted people still report things most recently uh the management has has revealed that they have supposedly discovered a hidden room that had never been uh, discovered before 161st room that they have now opened to the public. So, so it's still, it's still haunted and apparently it's secretly still growing somehow. And, and how do the, how does the, what is the manifestation of the haunts there? Like what, what are people experiencing? You know, what I found when I looked at a lot of these places is, is, you know, what you have is you have a strange building. You have, you know, uh, the, the Winchester House with its 160 rooms. You have the House of Seven Gables in Salem, Massachusetts that has this this strange hidden staircase that, that goes up the middle of the house that nobody exactly knows why it's there. And, and so you start off with a with a strange house, and then the, the, the stories that arise are often a little bit intangible at first. You know, I... Somebody will say, well, I felt a thing. I felt a presence. I, you know, I thought my, I thought my girlfriend was standing next to me, but I turned around and she was five feet away. Or, you know, I, I heard a breathing on the stairs or something like that. And, and, and so people have these experiences and they're often quite nebulous. And then the, the next stage is they start looking around for a story that might explain it. So, you know, then, then, oh, well, maybe that was the ghost of Sarah Winchester. Maybe that was, you know, the ghost of Nathaniel Hawthorne and come back to, to, to the House of Seven Gables. You know, it's sort of, becomes a process by which people try and explain uh, an experience that they don't have an easy language for. They start to explain it in, in terms of ghosts and they, they look at a, a building's past to see if they can understand what, what they felt and what that might mean. So what, um, 
what are the sort of unique characteristics of American superstitions like this or American experiences? Because if this is so intimately tied into uh, to our places and our history as a country, then presumably um, these American hauntings have their own sort of fingerprint. Right. And and I try to really keep the, the book focused on, on the United States to really sort of understand, you know, uh, the history of this country in relationship to, to ghosts. And, you know, one of the things I found uh, kind of one of the more, I guess, sort of stereotypical, uh, you know, ghost stories that you hear time and time again, which is quite uniquely American, is, is the idea of uh, the haunted Indian burial ground. You know, this mm. idea that you know, the, the happy suburban ha- household, has, you know, the family has bought this, you know, lovely, beautiful, picture-perfect <laughs> home. They, you know, poured their life savings into it. And now they have their, their idyllic suburban uh, dream come true. And, oh, lo and behold, it's haunted. And then somebody comes along and says, well, the reason it's haunted is because it's built on an Indian burial ground. It's sort of like, you know, you hear it so often, it almost becomes a cliche. And, you know, I, the more that I sort of looked into that that story and 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 that that kind of stereotypical uh, kind of haunting, what what became apparent is, you know, um, we are, you know, you know, Anglo Americans specifically, we we are immigrants who who came here uh, to a place that was already populated and and through through a pretty, uh, you know, often quite violent process. We, you know, displaced the, the indigenous inhabitants of, of the soil of America and, you know, onto reservations. And, and, um, and I think that the haunted Indian burial ground story carries a, a lot of sort of latent anxiety that, that maybe, you know, us, us Anglo-Americans still have about that process. The idea that uh, even though you, you bought a home, you have paid for it, you own the land, the idea that secretly it may not actually belong to you. There may have actually been, you know, earlier inhabitants who have, uh, you know, prior claims on your land. I mean, I think that that's a way for us to kind of, uh, kind of engage with that anxiety while sort of keeping it at arm's length, sort of keeping it in the form of a ghost story. So, um, you know, you talk about the Myrtle's plantation where the accounts have shifted over, um, over the years from that of an abused slave to, as you were just talking about, revenants from, uh, from a Native American burial ground. I mean, that's another example. Mm-hmm. Just tell us a little bit about that, about the history of that house, of the plantation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, here's a, here's a plantation that's in St. Francisville, Louisiana. So, you know, it's a couple, couple hours, uh, out, outside of New Orleans up the Mississippi. And, um, it's, it's this plantation that, that's been around since the late 18th century. Um, you know, it has had, a, a, a history of, you know, slave owners and, and other, you know, you know, Confederates and, you know, various, uh, aspects of its history. And, um, for a long time, it, uh, the, the, the ghost that was most commonly cited there was this, um, this former slave who had gotten in good with the, the master of the houses was, uh, his, mm-hmm. um, but had used her, uh, somewhat privileged position to, um, you know, to pass along, you know, secrets to, to the other enslaved people on the plantation, sort of, you know, help them out. Uh, and when she was, she was caught, finally, she was, uh, horribly mutilated and, um, sort of cast out of the, the, the house, but, but tried to get in back in the good graces with this idea that she would, um, you know, she was the cook. So she would, she would mix in a sort of, 
kind of very mild poison into the family's food and sicken the children, but then she would be the one who would nurse them back to health. And once she did that, everybody would see how valuable she was. And, you know, as the story goes, instead, she um, she used too much poison and actually killed the children and and the, the, the wife um, and 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 thus heartbroken and, and grief stricken. She uh, killed herself and and now, you know, haunts the Myrtle's plantation. But, you know, the, I mean, it's a it's a fascinating story. It has almost no relationship to truth whatsoever. There's no record of of, of any such slaves. There's no record of any of these events. The children all died of yellow fever or other completely unrelated causes. But, but again, it's a story about um, the way in which we sort of kind of craft stories about, you know, the antebellum South and, and uh, you know, the relationship between, you know, enslaved people and, and, and their white owners. And, you know, all that gets sort of bound up in this melodramatic tale that, that has become kind of one of the more famous examples of a, of a haunted plantation in the South. And do you feel with some of these that people really want to believe, I mean, uh, in, in these experiences and want to keep that going? Um, and, and why would they? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you mentioned before, I mean, this is a pretty universal belief. that It doesn't just exist in the United States. And I think, you know, as I was doing a lot of research and talking to a lot of, you know, paranormal investigators and believers and historians and, you know, anybody who would talk to me about, about ghosts pretty much, I, you know, I was willing to listen. And what I saw kind of again and again was a, a couple of themes that emerged. Um, one, there was this, uh, this, this real need to use, you know, the idea of ghosts and, and hauntings as a means of opening up the connection between us and, um, you know, our, our departed ancestors that, that for a lot of people, um, and a lot of people, the, the idea of, of ghosts are a way of sort of negotiating our own relationship to mortality and, and how we, you know, negotiate that divide. But the other thing that I, I think I found kind of more surprising, more interesting is that, you know, all of us have grown up, uh, or lived near, you know, the quote unquote, you know, spooky house, the house at the end of the block with the peeling paint and the weeds in the yard and the blinds are always drawn and, 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 you know, you, you never knew who lived there. Why was it like that? Why didn't they pick up after things? You know, it was just that, that weird anomalous house, you know, and it was never going to be in the history books. There was never going to be a new story about it. And so you make up ghost stories about it. You know, and I, th- I think that the idea, you know, in many ways, the ghost story is a way of accounting for a very tiny kind of micro history, if, if that makes sense. This idea that, you know, some places are, are, are too small to merit an actual history, but, but nonetheless draw us into a relationship of, of the past and, you know, what might have happened here and, and who might have lived here and, and what, what might have transpired. And I think that we, we rely on ghost stories to kind of uh, engage in the past on these, this kind of cellular level. You break down your haunts into basically four categories. You talk about houses, hangouts, institutions, and then entire towns. What I mean, I, I've heard of ghost towns, obviously, as abandoned towns, but do people talk about them as being haunted by actual ghosts in an entire town? In the, it was Again, it was fascinating to sort of think about an entire city being haunted and sort of look around for those places that, that had that reputation. And, and, 
in some cases, I found, you know, this was almost sort of like a, a, a concerted act of tourism. You know, I mean, obviously places like New Orleans and Savannah, Georgia and other cities that have these very kind of longstanding uh, kind of uh, gothic histories, you know, tend to have lots of ghost tours. They tend to have lots of, you know, supposedly haunted places and, the, you know, lots of folklore attached to them. And that those those places often get uh, they often use that that to sort of celebrate their history and sort of drive you know, tourists and other people to sort of engage with the past. But on the other hand, I, you know, I, 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 uh, ended up in Binghamton, Binghamton, New York, uh, which is on the Pennsylvania border about two miles out of, or two hours outside of New York city. And, um, I, as I was driving in from the airport, the, the cab driver told me the story about how, uh, you know, everybody who had ever lived in Binghamton was cursed by by the native Americans to never be able to leave that one way or another, they would always find their way back there. And so even as the town had progressively fallen on harder and harder times and sort of become kind of one of these quintessential Rust Belt towns, uh, you know, the, the story that had evolved among some people was this idea that, that the reason that they were cursed was that the entire city was haunted. So, so again, it became a, the, the, the language of haunting, in some cities is, is a way for a city to sort of account for its own history and its own sort of, you know, the ups and downs of, of, its, of its past. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Colin Dickey, author of Ghostland. And he's talking about all these various places that uh, where, where people have experienced haunts, or at least where uh, the history uh, is, uh, is, is strong uh, in towns, in buildings, plantations. And we're talking about uh, Binghamton. Um, and, and we're talking about how the, you know there's the, there's a belief that the entire town is cursed because it was built around a um, Indian burial ground. Ha, have you spoken with people who might have experienced these things firsthand? Any experiences, any ghost-like experiences firsthand? Oh yeah, I mean for sure. I mean certainly, you know, when you're researching a book about ghosts, um, uh, a lot of people have stories to tell you, and and uh, oftentimes you, you sort of can't can't keep them focused on whatever you're supposed to be talking about because the, the, the urge to tell a story is sometimes kind of, you know, overwhelming and, you know, somebody, you know, you've seen something you, you, you want to sort of explain it to somebody. And so, um, so yeah, so, I mean, a, a lot of what I did was to kind of gather up, um, you know, as many firsthand accounts as I could. And, and particularly among people who were both, you know, uh, described themselves as paranormal investigators or, or otherwise kind of, you know, delved into that history. But again, I mean, it's, it's rare to see, it's rare for somebody to have a, a, a ghost experience that, that takes a kind of, you know, narrative form, like you might see out of a, of a horror movie or a, you know, Ghostbuster movie or something where, you know, there's the, the kind of archetypal translucent figure in Victorian dress who appears and gives you some sort of secret or warning or something. I mean, usually the stories that people tell are a lot more ambiguous and they're a lot more you sort of diffuse this idea of, you know, well, I, I was, I was walking down this 
kind of weird alleyway and I, I saw this sort of blue light in front of me and I, you know, didn't know what to make of it, but then it was gone and I went home, you know? So, so a lot of times the actual stories that people have are, are, are a little bit more anticlimactic, but, but, uh, but they still speak, I think, to that, that need to sort of explain or understand why, you know, a thing that they saw, um, that doesn't make sense in any other way. I've, I've had a couple of dreams about, uh, people who have died and they are anticlimactic mm. to anyone but me. They're dreams like, you know, I, I saw my great grandmother and we were at a family reunion and everyone else left us alone in the kitchen so we could chat and catch up. And she liked what I'd done with right, my hair, right. you know, and there's nothing, there's nothing dramatic there at all, but, uh, it, it's just very personally meaningful. Right, right. Yeah. And, and the, on the other, I mean, I had a friend who told me a story about she was living in a kind of loft, a kind of, you know, kind of not very, uh, insulated, uh, loft situation that was kind of a, a dump. And, um, she started waking up in the middle. She would wake up in the middle of the night and there would be this blue figure hovering at the foot of her bed. And, and every night she would wake up and it would be there, this kind of this translucent blue figure just sort of watching her. And, and, uh, you know, and I, 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 she told me the story. I was completely wrapped. I was like, whoa, 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 what happened? Did you, you know, did, had somebody died there? What's the story? And, and finally she said, oh, no, eventually we just found out that there was a gas leak there. And so, you know, so, so again, like, you know, the, the, in some sense, the kind of most exciting ghost stories that I hear are often the ones that are most easily explained by, you know, oh yeah, there was sort of low level carbon monoxide poisoning going on. So, yeah. Wow. So, um, did you, in your research, end up talking to any of the people who create ghost stories for a living to people who write horror stories or horror movies, anyone on, on that side of things? Uh, you know, I didn't. I, I, I tried to sort of stay grounded as much in, in the history and the nonfiction as possible. But mm-hmm. I, I certainly, I certainly leaned on a lot of great classic horror fiction to, to kind of make sense of what I was seeing. So I, you know, I, I, I went back to writers like Shirley Jackson and Stephen King quite a bit because I think the way that they describe, you know, a haunted house or a haunted hotels often really gets to. Uh, you know, kind of central kind of anxieties and, and American subconscious in a way that I found really sort of useful and, and edifying. So I would often, you know, draw on them and Edgar Allan Poe, of course, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, to kind of understand how we have, uh, classified haunted houses through the years. Well, speaking of Stephen King and The Shining, you also included the uh, the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, and which which was the inspiration for Stephen King's The Shining. Did did you end up uh, visiting there yourself? You know, I, I I must confess that that was one of the few places in the book that I didn't get a chance to to visit, mainly because we were uh, we were traveling with my dog at the time, and and while the Stanley Hotel maybe is friendly towards ghosts, they are not friendly towards pets. So. <laughs> Uh, so we had to stay at a La Quinta or something like that. So, um, yeah, so I was, I was, I was bummed. I, you know, I've, I, I've known people who say stayed there and they've had some pretty, pretty wild experiences, but I, I myself haven't, haven't made it yet. So maybe, maybe next, next trip through Colorado. Well, tell us anyway, a, a little bit about that history and how much of the Stanley hotel and how much, uh, was, was, was that what, uh, was captured in the shining or, or was it a different ghost story altogether? Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, you know, I mean, I think that the Stanley Hotel probably had some haunted stories floating around in it uh, before 
Stephen King got there. But I, you know, I think that's one of those examples, kind of like the House of Seven Gables, of of a building that was that became haunted through its famous relationship to a work of literature. And um, you know, it's really been since the publication of The Shining, I think that that more and more people have claimed to have seen ghosts. But I mean, you know, the the story that that King himself tells is of of how he got the idea for that, that book of, you know, I mean, it's, it's just an irresistibly amazing story in some ways, almost better than the, the novel to me. And that, that, you know, he and his wife were, were there on the last night of the season and everything was closed down and they were the only guests in the entire building. And, you know, they were having dinner in this grand ballroom, just the two of them while this kind of canned classical music was playing, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of like, you don't even need the, the horror novel at some point, you've got it all right there at this sort of eerie, unsettling experience of being the only guest in a giant hotel. So you also wrote a book called Cranioclepty, which is about uh, people who are obsessed with owning the skulls of the famous and talented. And you wrote Afterlives of the Saints about uh, the, the long-lasting influence of uh, some very strange stories about people who have been martyred uh, or uh, otherwise uh, become saints. So there seems to be a little bit of a, of a theme here. What is it about all of these uh, kind of spooky, weird, macabre stories that, that inspires you? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the first story, the first book that you mentioned, uh, Cranioclepia, I kind of fell into by accident. I I had known the story that, you know, the, the English writer Sir Thomas Brown, his um, his grave had been disturbed several several years after his death, and somebody had taken his his head out of his grave and then sort of, you know, sold it to museums and whatnot. And I, I thought that was kind of a standalone until I discovered that the same thing had also happened to uh, to the painter uh, Francisco Goya and uh, and the composer Franz Joseph Haydn as well. That these guys, um, their heads had all been. Uh, taken by by various actors at various times and a couple other people and I, I it was sort of one of those weird moments where you're like I can't believe this was just a thing people did they just sort of <laughs> found somebody famous and dug up their grave and took their skull and put it on the mantle you know and so so that that book sort of happened just as as me trying to explain this this thing that I you know I couldn't believe that that you know hardly anybody knew about or nobody wanted to talk about and you know I think what connects that book and 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 the the Afterlives of the Saints and and the Ghostland uh, all together is you know I, I I'm really interested in in looking at at kind of marginal and ephemeral aspects of our culture and things that um, you know most people maybe don't want to talk about or maybe sort of dismiss as you know pseudoscience or unimportant or you know hokum and 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 instead sort of try and take that stuff seriously and see where it comes from and. I mean, the, the skull robbing, robbing was, was motivated in large part by phrenology, this idea that, you know, the bumps on your skull are, are indicative of your personality and your character. And I mean, that's a, it's a ludicrous science. I mean, it's obviously yeah. on its face quite, um, uh, quite false, but, you know, but it, but it, it, it captivated a large segment of the population in the early 19th century. And, and as a result, they did things that they wouldn't have done otherwise, including, you know, grave robbing famous people's heads. And so, you know, so so it's sort of you know one of those things where you start to think about the ways in which those things that you might otherwise dismiss actually have an impact on culture. And I think I've been trying ever since then to kind of ferret out some of those weirder stories and see how they've actually uh, left a legacy on us. 
I, putting the the two together, the the grave robbers and the saints, reminds me of some medieval reliquaries I've seen that were meant to hold the skulls of saints that were sacred relics. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Just, just like the you know, yeah, finger exactly, bone. Yeah. So it's, this goes back a long way. Right. Right. And also, it's it's one of those you know if you've ever been in one of those places where they they make these huge elaborate mosaics out of you know skulls and femurs and whatnot. I mean, you realize that our attitudes towards things that, um, you know, you, you may think of as, as, as sacred and unchanging are actually changing all the time. You know, our attitude towards, you know, the dead body and what we do with the dead body after death is, is something that, you know, changes a lot more rapidly than I think we, we often think it does. And, and, uh, and again, so, you know, you stumble upon one of these places that reflects a completely different culture. It's often quite shocking, but it's also to me quite fascinating. So, and um, what's got hold of your imagination currently? What's your next project? Oh man, I mean, what doesn't have a hold of my imagination <laughs> currently? I, you know, I mean, um, I, I not too long ago I, I wrote an article about uh, the hum, which is a, a mysterious noise that something like maybe two percent of the population can hear that sounds like a diesel engine rumbling in the distance, and and it's the kind of thing that that has driven some people nearly crazy, but has been dismissed by others mostly as a, a delusion. But, you know, I, 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 again, I, you know, I thought, well, you know, what, what about those people who take it seriously? What do they think? And so, you know, I, I kind of went around talking to people who were, who were hum sufferers and, you know, try to see what was being done to, to cure the hum. And so, so I've been looking for, for stories like that, stories that, again, people might be quick to dismiss as, as delusion or fancy, but, you know, maybe there's something deeper there. And and uh, going back to Ghostland a little bit, um, as you're you're going to these places, you're visiting, you're collecting stories. Uh, was there ever ever an occasion or a, a time when you yourself all of a sudden felt, whoa, what was that? Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly for sure. I mean, again, you know, a lot of these places that I went to are, you know, I mean, they're 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 famous for their hauntings for a reason. They're they, you know, like the Winchester House. They are oddly constructed, you know, maybe they're a little bit old or a little bit run down. And, you know, I mean, I spent, I spent some time in some pretty, pretty derelict hotels that, you know, were famous for, for terrible things that had happened there. And, uh, it's, it's hard in such places, especially if you're there to look for ghosts. It's hard not to, uh, you know, be walking down the hall and, and feel something and, and, and start to wonder what it is. You know, I mean, you kind of assume it's probably your imagination, but, but it, they, there's certainly some odd places out there, and I think they work on you. If nothing else, psychologically, they work on you in weird ways. And, and what have you learned about psychology, I guess, both individually and collectively from this project? It seems like it could give you a lot of insight into the human mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I, I went into this book, um, I mean, more or less agnostic, but but not necessarily sure how I felt about about those people who, you know, are really devoted to you know, paranormal researching and, and ghost hunting. And I think that one of the things that surprised me was really the extent of how many, you know, for many of them, the extent of their, their reverence and their, their treating of this experience as, you know, sort of like a disorganized religion in some sense, that this is a way for them to get close to something larger than themselves, to a history that goes beyond themselves. And, and I found that to be in many ways quite powerful um, and a, and a sort of, uh, interesting reflection on, on the way in which we, 
we adopt certain hobbies not because they pass the time, but because they allow us to get a little closer to something larger. We've been talking with Colin Dickey, and you can find his book, Ghostland, an American History and Haunted Places, in stores right now. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been really great. And, uh, and happy Halloween. You too. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Annie Carino brings us more spooky nonfiction, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Reviews editor Annie Carino is here to tell us all about some big books on ghosts and time for Halloween. Hello, Annie. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. So it's always nice to have you here. So um, let's start off with uh, Ghostland. We were just talking with Colin Dickey about this book. And uh, give us your... uh, your editorial perspective on that oh well we we really liked it i was gonna say um that's definitely on the list but you guys probably know a lot about that already after having interviewed him but um yeah it's just a a travel log but also kind of a take on you know the social science behind like people who believe in supernatural and he goes to different um he goes to different haunted places like hotels, houses, and and just kind of examines th- through the narrative of the tra- of traveling. And what right? else do you have? Okay, right. Okay, so I have another one that's sort of like that uh, along the same lines. Uh, Season with the Witch, The Magic and Mayhem of Halloween in Salem, Massachusetts by J.W. Ocker. You might recognize that author's name. He won the 2015 Edgar Award for Best Critical Biography um, for Poland, The Haunted Haunts of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. Um, And here he... uh, So last year, he moved his family to Salem, Massachusetts uh, for the to observe the entire month of the haunted happenings, which is the celebration, Halloween celebration there. And what the book is about is kind of this tension between uh, the historic events and the historic legacy of the town where 20 people were executed, and then what's happening now, which is kind of like... Uh, very commercialized celebration. It's fun, though. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't come down critically on either side. It's just he visits all the attractions, like the wax museums, the reenactments. There, um, there are a lot of theater events too within the month, uh, all working up to Halloween. And then uh, he also finds that there's this um, tension between the people who are year-round, or some of the people year-round in the town who don't want to be affiliated with the Halloween aspect. So, like, for example, there's a lot of overlooked parts of Salem. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's interesting because there are a couple of... Uh, it seems like every couple of years you get a, a book uh, uh, about Salem because of the uh, the ghost stories that are there, because of the uh, the, the executions, and, and it's kind of interesting. So this is, so this is like a, like a, a cultural perspective of 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 Salem then. Yeah, and like the the incongruous relationship between what's the past and present there and how it's it's at one point that like the you know there's the historic legacy and then there's this weird kind of strange holiday month long mm. 
right. sort of surreal, outsized celebration. So that one's really cool. That sounds like a, a very American thing. Like, we don't really know what to do when we're confronting our, our history. So we have parades for, you know, Christopher Columbus and his genocide. And we have, uh, you know, Memorial Day parades as though it weren't a day entirely about honoring the dead. And instead, people just think of it as like, let's go buy a cheap mattress and then have a barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> a day off. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, totally. And he points out here that there's a Walgreens uh, on the site where the the witches were executed now. So, like, there is really, it's kind of lost a lot. Of, like, the uh, more commercial or Halloween-y aspect of the town is taking over the historic part. The next one is kind of an art book. It's called Morbid Curiosities, mm. Collections of the Uncommon and the Bazaar. And it's a survey of 17 people who collect items and artifacts related to death. So, wow. so what do we have? What are some of these items? So, uh, and it also, it's the collectors too. So it, it showcases both the collections and then kind of gives a profile of uh, the person who collects them and their motivation. So you have someone like Jessica and a lot of these are private collections. So these are, these are people's hobbies or... It's just, uh, but they're devoted to certain aspects. You have Jessica M., who's a realtor in Indiana, who focuses on true crime artifacts. And so she's got, like, prisoner art and correspondence from serial killers. Like, she has a letter from John Wayne Gacy. Um, and she's got, like, a, a prison shank and the idea of the prisoner, or the mm. idea of the prisoner was used to kill. So you've got, like, these wow. sorts of, yeah. And then you have, like, uh, on the other side of it, like, uh, one of the people profiled has a vintage Ouija board collection, which is really cool. And these are photographed really right. in the book. And um, another one is medical helmets and masks. So that one was great, too. I, I just love that somebody decided this was a great thing to turn into a coffee table book. Yeah. Because I know people would totally be into this. Well, Colin, um, Colin Dickey, he was... a associated with uh morbid anatomy museum mm -hmm. in brooklyn too it's like kind you know there's a, there's a strange art to it people are fascinated by it but yeah absolutely and also strange taxidermy in there right. it's great a lot of skulls like mummies brains in jars that sort of thing wow. have you been to this museum in brooklyn? Um, oh i was talking about the book but yeah All i've right. been to yeah, yeah. yeah morbid anatomy museum is great <laughs> wow it's a, it's a fascinating place but yeah there's this whole i mean you can't just sort of say oh that's that's the goths you know they're just these are just people who are really interested in death and and the book kind of explores why some of it is like relates back to or why they're fascinated in death and also collecting items of mm, death and so, so right. it tries to explain why and it's unique for every person but it's not it's not always as crazy like it's not some crazy uh story from their childhood or whatever but sometimes it is it's a range you know people just like what they like right uh the other one is and this one is kind of also a christmas book can you guess what it is <laughs> sure why not uh, let's just let's just skip skip thanksgiving altogether and combine <laughs> halloween and christmas into, yeah well think about one day if if there was a character you that would combine Halloween, demons, that sort of thing, with uh, Christmas. What would it be? The Grinch? No. Sort of, I guess. Well, it's um, Krampus. Yes, it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and so this book is called The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas Roots and Rebirth of the Folk... folk 
Loric Devil by uh, Al Ridenor, who's um, the director of Krampus LA. Also used to be married to uh, Margaret Cho. Not that that's relevant. I just found that <laughs> out. <laughs> and for those who don't know what the Krampus is, it's a, it's a Christmas de- devil with roots in uh, uh, Austrian and German folklore. So the story goes um, that they created this tale of the Krampus to go along with St. Nicholas, who would visit houses and praise the good children. And then he would deliver the bad ones to the basket of the Krampus, a furry horned devil, <laughs> uh, demon wearing bells and chains who beat them with a switch. Um, this is just sort of an uh, accessible overview of the Krampus. Uh, and it... It has great illustrations, it, and it talks a lot about the connection to other folklore uh, characters in folklore, and also how um, how the Krampus is depicted throughout the past mm-hmm. 200 years. So right. there's a, a big component of that is this parade they have where they have in Austria where people dress up as either Saint Nick or the Krampus, and they march around and they beat beat spectators with a stick so i guess that's emerging today people are into that too so that's part of what the author does at the director as director of Campus wow. la so th- this is also very photo heavy and there are so many great photos of the different costumes right and, and it's really scary wow the mm-hmm. depictions oh and i think like the he there's a whole section about how the internet has like given rise to the popularity of this character again and it's coming now it used to only be in europe now it's coming to america um and there yeah i think like i, I have a modest proposal i think we should switch SantaCon with KrampusCon or whatever? Well, there's a terrifying <laughs> idea. <laughs> Hundreds of drunk Krampuses running right, wild right, through yeah. the street. Hitting right, people right. with sticks. Hitting people with sticks. Yeah. I think it could be fun. <laughs> I, 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 might, I might find a way to be out of town. Right. right. <laughs> that. Oh, that's great. And it sounds like you, seems like you have one more book just oh, to mention. Oh, yes. These are, this is for um, the more academic about of the Halloween lovers. Uh, it's more of a straightforward biography, but it's about, um, it's called Something in the Blood, the untold story of Bram Stoker, the man who wrote Dracula. And it's by David J. Scowl. Uh, and this, he, the author is a very well-known writer in horror film, uh, about horror film and uh, literature. He wrote Hollywood Gothic, the the tangled web of Dracula, from novel to stage to screen. Um, and he looks at the character of the author. And this one has a lot of new material. It has the correspondence between the author and Walt Whitman for the first mm-hmm. time, unpublished poems, and it also um, looks at uh, the author's sexual identity, specifically in the Victorian age, and that oh, was wow. before there were labels such as homosexuality, even though they say he did have homosexual uh, interaction. So it's interesting. It looks at sexual identity in that age. Right. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a cool book. Well, it sounds like a great collection of books for fans of the creepy and strange. Mm hmm. Well, thank you very much, Annie. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, 
and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another haunting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 